this is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. Welcome back to Base Layer. This is David, and this is your new episode with Jordan Clifford from Scalar Capital. This is irregular. This is the second time we've had someone from a fund come on the show, and the first one was Linda G. Uh, we really loved Linda. Um, I think her perspective and her background from days at AIG and risk management to her early days in Coinbase were really important. And Jordan as well was early days in Coinbase. So we talked about the evolution of the overall digital asset space. And this is heavy Bitcoin. So we spoke a lot about that. We spoke about futures, and that led us to uh, a long conversation about the importance of Backed, which just launched this week. Another institutional platform launching within digital assets is really important. A lot of people in the space are a little up in arms that it's been a little slow, but all things that are good come in time. And so we talked about some of the other things within Bitcoin. We talked about some of the improvements, the BIPs that are coming out, uh, Snort Signatures, Mast, uh, Taproot, and a few other different features. These, in Jordan's opinion, and some of the other Bitcoiners out there are going to take time, but it is interesting to see the developer community looking to build functionality within L1 and other layers of Bitcoin. So this is a heavy conversation about Bitcoin, and I think you'll enjoy it. Remember, nothing on base layer is investment advice, so please do your own research. And a little bit of a shout out, I'm going to be in Chicago this Monday, September 30th, uh, for Voices of Blockchain. I'm going to be speaking about family offices and digital assets. And so if you're around, you know, feel free to uh, try to come around, um, grab a cup of coffee and get to meet each other. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about digital assets and crypto and be on the lookout. I'm going to be having a pretty heavy event and conference schedule in the next few weeks. And so I will let everyone know on the podcast where I'll be and hopefully we can get, catch up and uh, have some fun. Take care. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. I have Jordan from Scalar with us. How are you, Jordan? Doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. So this is going to be another follow-up. We had Linda on the show a few months ago. It was a great conversation and one I really enjoyed, and I know our guests uh, and our listeners really enjoyed it. And so looking forward to having a great conversation with Jordan. We're going to talk about Bitcoin. We're going to talk about Bact and everything else in between. Um, but as everyone know who comes on the show, what I like to do is kind of hold the phones and talk a little bit about your past and how you came into this world. And so if you could enlighten us, tell us how you got to this, to this place you are today, what got you inspired into crypto, you know, was it necessarily kind of this disintermediation, the decentralization, or was there something else about the fundamental technology that really inspired you? And let's hear that. Yeah, absolutely. So. I studied uh, computer science, and a lot of my friends were really into gaming and and uh, whatnot. So I actually noticed a lot of my fraternity brothers were uh, spending a lot of time, and even in some cases, money on WoW gold, uh, World of Warcraft gold, and that just kind of really piqued my curiosity that this virtual good could, uh, you know, be so meaningful that that people are willing to, you know, transfer physical real world dollars for them. Um, and then I learned about Bitcoin in 2011. I know you don't want to know exact timelines necessarily, but I was honestly very skeptical of it at the beginning. I, I had a background in uh, a second major in economics, and we had been basically taught that money was a, as a government product. 
and uh, it had to be inflationary, otherwise terrible things happen to the economy. So I had this, this kind of like uh, academic lens that I was viewing the world through and really was quite skeptical of Bitcoin until 2013 when I finally read the white paper after the Cyprus events were happening and the government of Cyprus was ready to take their citizens' bank account balances. So that spurred me to actually look into it and re really understand the technology. And I was blown away by, yeah, like you say, the distant intermediation. So finally, we had a way to do money as a, as a protocol on the Internet that anybody had access to and anybody could participate in. And, and the best part was that nobody had to trust each other. It was really reliant on the self-interest of the, all the stakeholders, mainly the miners. They kind of kept the system honest and secure and going forward into the future, despite nobody trusting each other. I thought that was really quite amazing that you could get a system to work uh, with, no, with no trust involved. In fact, antitrust was preferred. Interesting. So gaming um, is something that I've been talking a lot about. And I'm curious, as you, you brought that up from the, the, the top, um, my theory is that the future of Bitcoin is also highly dependent on the geography and the demographic of people these days that are playing games every single day like Fortnite and PUBG and others out there that they are reliant and they are working in a construct of digital native currencies in-game currencies they call them mm -hmm. BP they call them V-Bucks whatever it may be depending on the game I'm curious because you brought it up from you know the beginning if you also can opine on that, if you think that that has a really strong correlation and that leads to potential further adoption of Bitcoin and other digital currencies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the jury's still out on where the real killer adoption is going to happen. In my mind, it's either going to be in third world countries where the financial infrastructure and fiat currencies are so unreliable and, and awful that they're not serving the needs of their citizens. Then they're going to be pushed into these you know, digital uh, currencies. Um, that's one, that's probably my best bet on where we're going to see real meaningful adoption first. But the second one is really generational and really tied to, yeah, like you say, these virtual r realms and, and these games where there's digital goods and there's scarcity of those, of those in-game items. And there's need, there needs to be currencies that people use and players use to, to kind of transact. I mean, I, I, it really did leave a strong impression on me when I watched my fraternity brothers, like, literally spend almost all their non-class hours like at the at the wow auction house like this is a place where they would go and bid on bid on items and sell items and i thought that was just incredible that that uh, you know these virtual goods were, were really captivating so much attention and, and effort from these very smart people so i think that the you know those worlds um those gaming worlds are definitely gonna could definitely bring a, a big wave of, of usage uh, and just to kind of salt uh, put a little salt and pepper on that further you know, there's statistics out there that in the next year, by 2020, and I don't know if it was Gardner or somebody else, but the world of esports, which obviously is fueled by games like Fortnite and PUBG and others, that the audience is going to be bigger than the NHL, the MLS, and some other, I think it was maybe another sports league here in the United States, that it was going to dwarf those three leagues in audience in the next year. And so... 
If you're listening to this, you should definitely take a look at this. This is really important as it relates to the further adoption um, and the future, in my opinion, of Bitcoin and other digital currencies. But let's get into Scalar. We had Linda on, as I said, a few months ago, but let's give a refresh on what Scalar Capital is and what you guys focus on. And then we're going to talk a little bit about futures and crypto. We're going to talk about Bitcoin and backed and some other things that you've been thinking about over the last few months. Yeah, absolutely. So... I met Linda at Coinbase, so I joined Coinbase a bit after her. I joined in the early 2016, and we worked really closely together on internal tools, uh, a lot of compliance and fraud tooling that kind of automated various processes for the staff at Coinbase. But what Linda and I really like, like to collaborate on even more than that was uh, bringing in speakers to come talk at Coinbase and getting uh, internal colleagues together to discuss different crypto assets and whatnot. And we found that that was what we really loved to do most was to just kind of chat about these assets, do research into the, the front lines. And so she she basically was thinking hard about kind of leaving and either joining a fund or starting a fund. And she asked me if I was interested in doing that. And I, I said, yes, absolutely. Let's do it. Um, so that's kind of the genesis of Scalar. And so what we do is we, we kind of take a long-term view on the world and we look for crypto protocols that are worth worth investing in. So we, we're a long-only fund, and we look at uh, crypto protocols that we believe will have lots of value kind of flowing through the networks uh, in, the, in, in the future. So this is kind of like three to five plus years out, out which of these uh, crypto assets and the underlying protocols are going to have large sources of demand and, and solve the, the problem of a, a big market. Um, and so we try to create a basket of these 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 assets that we think uh, have the best chance to to really accrue a lot of value as the world goes through this inflection point of being totally skeptical, uh, dismissive of crypto to, you know, being more accepting. And, and, and finally, you know, we think it's going to take a couple of niches to kind of break through. But once they do, people will say, hey, uh, this actually makes way more sense than doing things the way we do now with, you know, in some cases, lots of paper pushing or phone calls to settle different transactions. Um, it can be really crazy, especially in international transactions. So we think that these protocols just solve so many of these problems that that uh, that you know the underlying units of account on these protocols will be in demand uh, as user bases grow on these protocols. The proverbial protocol wars. I uh, someone <laughs> someone's got to write a book about that. It's got to be. I got to see graphics. It's got to be totally sci-fi. I want someone to do that. So if there's any authors out there who are listening, let's let's generate some fun memes here. And just, I think it's uh, we're getting to that point where we're starting to see maturation. Obviously, we're seeing you know nodes. I think Bitcoin has about ten thousand nodes. We have Ethereum that has about sixty five hundred nodes, and we've seen a few other protocols out there. We had Qtamon, which you know claims to have a few thousand nodes as well too. So we are starting to see the emergence of or the maturation of this narrative of protocol wars. And I think that's just so, <laughs> that's so interesting. But let's talk a little bit about Bitcoin. Um, Absolutely. So, you know, in, re in relation to what is happening out there, we're going to talk about futures because you, you wrote a really great article and I encourage you all to check it out on Medium, uh, Futures and Crypto. And there's also some big news out of Bact. Bact is a company that was started by New York uh, Stock Exchange, ICE, um, which uh, is working to basically, in a sense, and you know there could be some qualifications on this. I might not necessarily be saying it as well, but um, maybe as a clearinghouse 
and someplace where you can warehouse Bitcoin and they can do clearing and a few other different kind of operations around Bitcoin, making it more usable and more of an on-ramp, off-ramp for Bitcoin. But effectively, let's talk about Bitcoin where we are today. So before we get into futures, you know, we've seen, and we don't necessarily have to talk about price, but we have seen a stabilization in Bitcoin over the last few months. As we all know, in December of, of 18, it was hovering the threes, and then it went up to 14,000 towards the, I'd say, the middle or the beginning of summer, and then it's been kind of hovering this 10 range, and we're starting to see some, you know, some stability. Some some people might say it's stability. Where do you think we are as we, you know, we can talk about the, the hard cap of 21 million and, and also how many have been mined. Why don't you give the listeners from your understanding of Bitcoin and, you know, kind of the nuances there, you know, there's 21 million as a hard cap. How many have been mined? And let's talk about the halving a little bit because I think this is a great opportunity for people to understand what the importance of the happening is, and that's going to happen in about six months. So why don't we talk about that first, and then let's talk about futures and crypto and talk about backed. Okay. Yeah, that sounds great. You, you touched on a lot there. So as far as uh, Bitcoin, as you point out, there's 21 million that will ever exist. I think it's actually just a fraction shy of 21 million when you, when you, when you extrapolate the, the emission curve. But uh, essentially 21 million, and right now I think we're just shy of 18 million that have been mined. So we've essentially only have 3 million Bitcoin left uh, to mine over the next 100 plus years that, that Bitcoin is going to be releasing new Bitcoin. And after that, it'll just be up to transaction fees to make up to make the incentives for miners to continue to produce blocks and, and, and grow the network. So we're we're actually very early in Bitcoin history, but we're quite far along in terms of the, the supply emission. You know, most 85 percent of Bitcoin has already been uh, been created, which, you know, there's there's some people out there that are looking at the, the stock to flow ratio. That's a ratio that essentially looks at the current supply versus the the, ink, the net new supply per year. And they look at that ratio and, and that's actually correlated decently well to Bitcoin. And I know that they've used that ratio to kind of analyze commodities prices in other places, such as at least gold. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're, we're coming up on you know, the having most uh, by far the majority of bitcoin mined and yet mainstream acceptance of bitcoin is just now s starting to come back so we had kind of this mainstream retail rally in 2017 that was in, in hindsight obviously unsustainable um that's re that's re retreated throughout 2018 early and uh and it's kind of come back a little bit in 2019 but i think on the all on the whole when you when you kind of like take zoom out and look at the big picture most educated Americans are now at least talking about Bitcoin, whether they like it or not. Um, and they're coming up, coming up with few and fewer reasons why it's a total scam. Um, at least my opinion. I'm obviously biased. I, I, I work in this stuff all the time, but I, I, they're going to run out of reasons why Bitcoin is completely, uh, you know, tomfoolery. They're, they're going to eventually have to accept that it has some use cases for some people and maybe they'll want some, maybe they won't, but, uh, the narrative and the, the, the public opinion, at least as far as I could tell, is, is, has really softened. Uh, you know, I see articles in New York Times and coverage on CNBC, and it's no longer just totally dismissive. And I think it does take people uh, a number of years, honestly. Uh, it took me a couple of years, and I think it takes most people a, num a number of years to, from, from the time when they first hear about digital currency and Bitcoin to when they finally accept that it's, you know, useful technology and, 
has a place in the world, whether it's whether it's useful to them as an individual or not. Right. So I, I think that this kind of this this maturation of, of public opinion has has really matured, and at the same time, the the supply left to mine is is um, you know is about to be halved. Uh, so right now, it's I think twelve and a half Bitcoin. It might, it might only be already be six six point two five, but it's it's gonna I think it's gonna go down to six point two five. Now that I think about it, so the you know, the the actual supply is going to be much less incremental supply. At the same time, more people are accepting and, and potentially wanting it. So it seems like, in in my view, that you know, obviously not investment advice or financial advice, but it seems like this there's going to be a supply shock uh, coming into the happening and, and following it. Yeah, it follows classical economics. And obviously, as you pointed out, this is not investment advice, as we always say at the top of the hour of the show, that do your own research and obviously speak to people that are managing your money for a family office or an institutional investor. But at the same time, classical economics says that if you have a, a shortening of supply, if you cut supply and you have demand that continues on that curve upwards, then you have price accretion. And so that is something that all of us in the community have been talking about for the last few months. There was an interesting conversation a few about a month or so ago that someone, I believe it was on Twitter, suggested that everyone knows about the happening that's happening in six months, and so it should already be priced in. And I kind of disagree with that because we're still growing the the ears and the eyes and the eyeballs on Bitcoin that people, especially family offices probably don't know about the happening. And so I think there's still a fair amount of people out there, a fair amount of capital that does not know about this event that's happening. And so I don't know if that's necessarily been priced in per those comments. And so we'll leave that to be determined and we'll watch that obviously, but let's talk about futures. And so there's been a huge emphasis on the ETF. And as we've seen, the ETF has been, you know, kind of sputtering, I guess I can put it in the nicest way possible that, the regulators, from what it seems, do have issues as regards to manipulation of Bitcoin. But you wrote a great article about futures in crypto. And so the CME launched the first Bitcoin futures contract in December of 2017. And so we've seen the evolution of that. And so why don't you tell us about the futures market and why the futures you know, are important as it relates to supply and to the overall price discovery. I want to delve into price discovery a little bit more with you as you talk because this has been a sticky issue over the last few years. You know, the, the price of Bitcoin, and again, we're not necessarily just focused on price because there's more to Bitcoin than just price, but... When people look at it, when they look on their Coinbase account or they look on their, you know, if they Google the price of Bitcoin, they see a price that does not always reflect the real price. There's always been, you know, kind of debate about that. So let's talk about futures and, you know, kind of go into, you know, your opinion and what you were really, you know, kind of delving into about futures. And let's talk about price discovery. And then we're going to talk about backed. Yeah, absolutely. So in my view, there is kind of the current traditional financial system. There's these giant capital markets. There's the stock market, the bond market, the futures market. And there's just untold huge, enormous sums of money uh, sitting in these places. And there's the new, you know, financial system, Bitcoin, Ethereum, uh, so on and so forth. And these are new networks, new ways to transfer value. They actually, these, these, the link between these, Today is very tenuous. I mean, you have some a few exchanges out there, the Coinbase's of the world, that have ACH rails 
but still there's a lot of friction. There's a lot of headache. There's a lot of uh, compliance process you have to go through to, to get your money out of the you know legacy or traditional financial system and into the new financial system. And there's a lot of people that would love to have just a little bit of exposure in their 401k or into their, in their traditional broker brokerage account. And they don't necessarily want to go through the, the hassle of withdrawing and setting up a new Coinbase account. So I think the building these bridges between the legacy financial system and the, and the new financial system is only going to strengthen both systems. Um, and the futures in my mind is a very big part of that. So, you know, if you look at the traditional financial system, futures, they just have so much liquidity and they trade way more hours than other other instruments. So if you wanted to get some S&P 500 or Dow, Dow uh, exposure, you know, the futures is, is often the best way to do that. You can get instant liquidity. Uh, you can trade them around the clock and you, do, you can put up a small amount of collateral versus what you what the exposure you want. So it's a great way for people to to get some leverage and, and to get, uh, you know, these these thick supplies of liquidity that they can they can utilize to get that exposure. So, you know, in, in 2017, CME launched the cash cash settled Bitcoin future. Some people, you know, were, were crying foul. They thought it was going to blow up the whole financial system. Uh, other people were, you know, saying, hey, let's just make sure we handle collateral and margin calls uh, as we normally do for any other asset that could potentially be volatile. And it's not going to be such a big deal. I think the, the latter has been proven to be more correct that, hey, this is just a, a, an object with a price and these are just standard derivatives that we that we already know how to do. So that, that uh, you know, that cash offering from CME really has, has in my mind, started the, the maturation of, of these financial markets, these crypto markets and these more of the integration of the traditional financial markets with the crypto financial markets. And, you know, I th- in, my, in the post I brought up, uh, you know, some people say, Oh, the CME futures are cash settled. They actually, you know, they're they're actually a, a drain on Bitcoin, and they and they they people are rehypothecating these CMEs to get price exposure, uh, these futures to get price exposure, um, versus actually having to buy Bitcoin on spot. I think those guys uh, that that argument's a little short sighted. You know, for everybody who wants to go long Bitcoin price uh, exposure on on a future, there's someone who else who wants to go short. That, that that price exposure. So you're not really creating Bitcoin out of thin air. You're creating you know an agreement between two people to to trade on on the future value of the price. And the person who's short, you know, if the if the market does turn into a bull market, they're going to want to get out of that unless they have very strong conviction and very deep pockets that they're going to be right. So you know, I think that the even though they're cash settled, the CME futures did did, did a good thing uh, in terms of giving us like uh, expected price. Uh, over the next few uh, contract termination dates, I think they have monthly contracts. So that kind of, in, in some ways, allows you to get a bit of a yield curve um, or kind of an expected forward price expectations. Uh, a bit repetitive there, sorry. Um, but uh, yeah, so the BACT is, is going to be launching uh, physically delivered. So this, ta- this this negates a lot of those arguments. You know, and, and when it comes time to delivery, if the contract is still out there, it, it, the, the Bitcoin becomes due. So BACT is going to be acting as a warehouse. There's going to act, this is going to actually be a very regulated, federally regulated venue for institutions to come in and and buy Bitcoin, get Bitcoin exposure, so they can have Bitcoin exposure temporarily if they want to close out their future before expiration, or if they leave their future open once the termination date comes, they're actually going to be able to physically receive that Bitcoin and, and have it um, have it on their balance sheet. 
Right. So, yeah, so let's uh, go into back a little bit. So designed to support digital assets from securely storing digital assets to, to transacting. Regulated ecosystem uh, built on a secure technology to serve institutions, merchants, and et cetera. So partnering with ICE's leading futures exchange and clearing infrastructure to bring physical delivery futures contracts to market participants in about 30 countries. So participants will undergo Apple KYC AML consistent with CFTC regulated markets and connect via ICE's existing infrastructure. And so do you think this is going to have a real impact with institutions? Do you think, I think a lot of people in the Bitcoin kind of community and crypto proper, if you will, have been waiting for the last few months. It hasn't really had, there hasn't been a big news push. There hasn't been a big catalyst. There's been this, as I said, there's been everyone waiting for this ETF and the ETF doesn't seem to be happening. Vanek just started to uh, kind of transgress into other offerings for institutional investors. Do you think this is going to have a huge or a significant catalyst on the future of Bitcoin going forward? You know, I think this is is going to be big for Bitcoin going forward. I don't think it's going to be felt right away. I think a lot of these developments, um, you know, when names like as big as ICE get into the game, I think it changes the slope of, of the adoption curve amongst the general public, amongst the institutions. And I think that, you know, when these big names um, get involved, I think that it really does kind of soften some resistance to Bitcoin. And, and I think that that but I think that takes a lot of time. So I, I think that the back launch will probably not, you know, I, I could happily be wrong, but I, I don't think it's going to cause like a tidal wave of capital to move into the market on day zero. But what I do think is going to happen is that they're going to slowly, you know, ramp up their their books and their liquidity and and more and more money managers, more and more uh, investors are going to say, hey, I actually can hedge these things. I can, you know, I can, you know, I can buy puts. I can, uh, I can, you know, short the future and, and buy spot and do a cash and carry trade. There's lots of liquidity. There's lots of, uh, you know, regulated venues out there to trade spot Bitcoin, to trade futures uh, on Bitcoin, and, or maybe they they do have some interest in that Van Eck product. Although the the week one figures are pretty pretty. Um, lackluster. I think there's only like $40,000 in Bitcoin in that vehicle so far. Um, so, you know, I think that the institutions are still kind of like just looking at each other and, and seeing who's going to die first. I mean, you've got the Yales and the uh, Harvards of the world that are investing into some crypto funds. I think that that's going to take several quarters to years for, to, for others to kind of follow them. And I think that most institutions are just kind of trying to make sense of the world around them and you know they're they're gonna they're gonna find that these markets are more mature than than they they had thought uh, as they kind of like look over the coming quarters and when they see these different venues for trading and they see the other participants in these markets I think that I think it will bring them in but I, I don't think it's going to happen right away I think it's going to take quite some time and so let's talk about Bitcoin is the roadmap as we're talking heavily about Bitcoin and I always enjoy that because as everyone knows on the show I am not a Bitcoin maximalist I am not an ETH maximalist I am a knowledge maximalist so I try to see everything and learn everything and I think there is a world out there of opportunities it's not just one or the other 
Um, so as regards to Bitcoin, and I know you're not necessarily, you know, Captain Bitcoin there. It's just not, you're not speaking for the entire community, but there have been some things that are on the upcoming that I think are interesting. And so there's a few releases. Um, they're called BIPs. Um, there's MAST, there's Taproot, there's Schnorr signatures and a few other different things. Where do you think Bitcoin is going? Do you think Bitcoin is trying to... Have they acknowledged that there is some sort of application for smart contracts and that while they're obviously very protective of layer one, that they don't necessarily want to obviously disrupt layer one, but they still see that there is application for this? Where do you think, you know, where are all these things going? What are some of the things that you're watching in terms of Bitcoin's, you know, future roadmap? And, you know, where do you think it goes for the next year or so? How does it evolve? Very slowly. Uh, you know, I've, I've been following Bitcoin since 2011. I've been you know, invested since 2013. And I've been watching the narrative um, evolve. And, you know, it's definitely turned much more conservative and much more um, resistant to, to, to novel change and, and very deliberate with those changes. So you mentioned some technologies that I've been following very closely. Uh, Schnorr Signatures, I think, is, is a really, really great Technology it, it not only shrinks the size of the signature, but it allows signatures to be combined together, um, and this can incentivize people to actually get more privacy for themselves, even if they just care about their, you know, transaction costs. So only by purely managing their their transaction costs and wanting to lower it, you know, they could be pushed into some coin join transactions that actually share a signature amongst all the inputs. Uh, so this is this is a great thing. Um, but to be honest, I don't think it's going to happen in the next year. I, I would love to be wrong on this. But these these kind of especially bigger developments tend to take a lot of time. Um, you know, I know I know Peter Woolley put out some uh, requests for comments and some proposals on some basics, basics outlining the structure of these snore signatures. But, um, you know, that's still in the feedback loop and it's still going to need more development and testing and then probably a couple of release cycles before it'll make its way into Bitcoin. So Bitcoin's going to going to change slowly. Uh, I think it's really much more about um, the supply. It's about the the brand of the store of value. This is the, you know, the digital gold that that narrative has really taken off, especially in the last couple of years since the block size war uh, or debate had, has kind of almost a, it's in a truce or a, a ceasefire at this point. I think uh, the big blockers, you know, they, forked into Bitcoin Cash and then subsequently Bitcoin SV, which muddied the waters a bit. But you have like big block Bitcoin chains and then you have Bitcoin who's under the leadership of the Blockstream founders, Greg Maxwell, Peter Woolley, has really decided that its course is much more conservative and much more long-term focused. So they're not adding new features very quickly. I mean, they have a lot of great innovations scheduled. Um, I think that you know, uh, Schnorr signatures, maybe a year away, Mast, Taproot, maybe similar timelines to maybe a bit past that. Um, there's also some other, you know, requests uh, and, and proposals from Peter Woolley, uh, like Miniscript, which is a new, mm-hmm. basically more human readable language that people can use to code uh, code Bitcoin transactions and, con- and contracts. So I, I think Bitcoin really does want to be more fully featured than just a payments network. I don't think it's ever wanted to be just a payments network. It's wanted to be programmable money, not as programmable as ETH. I mean, you're not really going to get, um, you know, dApps and, and oracles and DAOs and all that, but you will have, you know, multi-sig, you will have escrow, you will have M of N, 
um, you know, and then various ways to combine M of N with an actual, you know, script that could be run in, in lieu of M of N. So there's, there's all kinds of ways to kind of put different programmable logic into your Bitcoin transactions and to have those transactions be spendable by various different criteria, some of which are just a consortium uh, or a committee of people, and some of them are uh, input from, from elsewhere uh, that can cause a script to, to satisfy uh, and, and to spend those, those Bitcoin. So as an investor and someone who's been investing in this space now for a while, obviously we've talked heavily about Bitcoin. Is there anything else that you are seeing, you, Linda, and the rest of the team there, that over the course of the last few months, or do you think anything is going to happen? Are there any catalysts or anything that you think in terms of roadmaps of other projects that you're watching that you think people should be keeping their eyes and ears open to? Is there, Are there some things that might be kind of under the radar that, you know, when they come out actually might uh, actually move this market either way? Yeah, so... Uh... Obviously, ETH 2.0 is, is something the whole industry is watching and, and waiting for. Um, I think that that is a is a culmination of many many years of work and research. Um, so I don't. It's not under the radar per se, at least not within the crypto industry. But that's that's something that's a catalyst. That I think a lot of people are very very excited for. Um, on the Ethereum system, you know, DeFi has has gotten some traction. And it's still pretty small by, you know capital market standards but it's 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 large and growing by crypto standards um so that's something that we pay very close attention to uh, the protocols like compound and dharma and uh, dydx and then i think um you know the lightning network is also again not under the radar but slowly but surely uh maturing and i think you're going to see more and more kind of use cases and toy examples you know things like the the wall the pixel wall where you can change uh, change pixels for a for a Satoshi or or more interactive ways to kind of kind of pique the imagination of more developers. Yeah, I think we're still really in early and we're still in kind of a world where it's developers rule. Uh, it's really hard to use this stuff and developers are going to have to get in there and make make these things more accessible and, and usable with with user interface and user experience design. So yeah, I think we're we're still kind of a ways away from anything that's going to be super meaningful to, to mainstream. Um, but, but I think that developers, developers are, are, are slowly but surely building out the building blocks to, to make, to make the, make the future crypto world a lot more usable and exciting. So this has been something that, you know, I'm, I'm, it's interesting you brought this up and not necessarily that we kind of prepared for that, but one of the things that in terms of Ethereum and you mentioned developers, one of the things that I've been talking to a lot of different projects on, they've come on the show too, is this notion of solidity and how, mm-hmm. you know, think of it as, you know, we won't necessarily, we won't go into languages. I don't want to get people confused, but imagine that you have learned how to drive a car by reading a manual in English. And then all of a sudden you need to adjust something in either your mirror or your radio or something in your engine and that manual is in greek and so you have to all of a sudden change everything and figure out you know greek language to be able to do something that you normally would have been able to do um and so while that's a poor example it's an example that i still think is relevant because it seems that solidity in my opinion and some of the other opinions as i said of some of the other guests that have been on the show has been 
a factor that has slowed down developers coming in. Now, I know Ethereum has a lot of developers, and I know that there are people building dApps, and I know there's a lot of steam going forward, so this is not a, a kind of a shortcoming on Ethereum. But I think we've seen other protocols out there like Near, which I believe um, you guys all invested in too, and Near was on the show. Near uses, you know, TypeScript and JavaScript, and they use things that developers have been using for decades. And so I'm curious if you think, if you guys think about that at all, if Solidity has been something that, you know, could potentially have slowed things down. And is that why other protocols like Near and others potentially could actually become the next Ethereum? Very, very potentially. Uh, you know, Solidity is kind of a double-edged sword. It, it looks very familiar. It looks a lot like JavaScript. But JavaScript is probably not the language you want to use if you're going to be, you know, engineering robust financial infrastructure. It's not type safe, uh, which means that you can have an integer and think it's a string and your program can go on and interpret that number as a string and all, all kinds of weird side effects can happen uh, when you don't have type safety. So there's there's a lot of, you know, early bugs in Ethereum's smart contracts that have been caused by, you know, kind of guardrails that just aren't there. Um, that said, you know, I don't think it's going to be a walk in the park for any future Ethereum competitor. I mean, anytime you try to engineer more of those guardrails, it's going to take time to get those guardrails right. And, and it's going to take some seasoning before that you find the right you know, trade-offs uh, in terms of productivity versus safety. So, you know, it, it, Solidity itself, yeah, it's probably not the best uh, language. It's, it's, it's too easy to kind of shoot yourself in the foot. But... You know, it, at least it was out there early and it's, you know, it's had time to kind of go through some iterations and there's been follow on, you know, attempts to improve the language that compiled down into the same uh, virtual machine code. So I guess I just have to say the jury's still out um, on whether or not the, the language itself is going to be something that, that holds it holds it back for the long term or, or not. I think that the there's there's always a trade off between speed to market versus uh, getting it more perfect before you get to market, uh, which you know these 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 second third generation networks have have more of a chance to kind of see what the failings of the first generation protocols are, but at the same time they they're they're kind of giving up distance in the foot race even even as you know as we go until until they're launched themselves. So this has been a great conversation. I love talking about Bitcoin and some of the things that are happening and some of the other protocols. As we like to shift into the getting to know our guest phase, there are two things, as everyone who has listened to the show knows, I like to pick on what have you been reading, and I hope it is not just all crypto white papers and things of that ilk, that you get to enjoy <laughs> things, and I know Linda is all about reading and playing and going out and exploring, so hopefully that has transpired to you as well. So what have you been reading? And then music, what do you listen to while you're working, while you're traveling, what gets you inspired? Yeah, great questions. So, you know, as you can imagine, I've been immersed in technology, Silicon Valley culture since 2011 when I first moved here. So I've actually been feeling much more drawn to physical culture. Uh, so I've actually taken up martial arts about a year and a half ago, uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So I've actually been reading a lot of different books about Brazilian jiu-jitsu history and technique. So I'm currently reading uh, Jiu-Jitsu University. It's one of the main um, books that often gets recommended in jiu-jitsu circles. 
and uh, yeah, so I just try to like understand how to, how to move, how to how to how to position myself, and and uh, it's been a great tool for me to just learn more about myself, my body, um, and how to and how to play the game. So yeah, jujitsu has been keeping me busy outside of the, all the crypto white papers. Interesting. And uh, that is good to know. So obviously, if I ever need a you know bodyguard or someone to make sure that I'm safe, I know who to call now. Um, and in terms of music, anything that you listen to while you're working, doing jujitsu or anything of that nature? Yeah, yeah. So I'm uh, really big into techno and deep house. I think my favorite DJs come from this project called Mayan Warrior, which goes out to Burning Man every year. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's, a, it's a collective out of Mexico City. So uh, my, one of my favorite producers and DJs is uh, Damian Romero, who's one of the co-founders of that uh, Burning Man camp. And I'm always listening to his, uh, his sets on uh, SoundCloud, or sometimes I'll, I'll load the Vimeo up to get a little bit of a feel for uh, the playa. Um, I wasn't able to go to this year to Burning Man, but that's something I really like to go to as well. Um, really love the culture out there. Shout out to all the burners. I have yet to do that. I don't think I'm going to, but my friends John Dell and Jason Swamy and those guys at Robot Heart, I know you guys have been rocking that out for almost a decade, if not more, so shout out to you guys. Uh, I, too, come from that background. I, As people know, I was a DJ, and techno and house music is in my backbone, and so that's always good to hear, and uh, we'll be friends forever, either crypto and or house music, so that is also awesome. That's good to know. Um as we like to wrap up, you know, people know how to reach out. You know, I would like them to obviously check out your article on Medium, but is there anywhere else that people can learn more about Scalar, you, what the work that you and Linda and the team are doing? You know, feel free to let them know now. Yeah, follow me on Twitter, jcliff42. Um, and then our website, scalar.capital, has links to various articles and commentary that Linda and I have done over the, you know, over time. Awesome. So this is Jordan Clifford at Scalar Capital. Uh, this is a team that I have a lot of respect for. Obviously, Linda's been on the show from the early days. And so love their perspective, loved having the conversation about Bitcoin and some of the other things that are happening. And we'll be back with you guys soon. Take care, Jordan. All right. Thanks a lot, David. For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash layer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice, which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on Layer, let us know. Subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter, Arca at Arca, or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space and the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, marketing commentary, videos, and more.